Good morning, church. My turn on, maybe. Uh, it is great to see you guys today. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church, and we are so glad you are here worshiping with us today. Uh, we have been traveling through the book of John for a while now, and we are nearing the end. Uh, you can go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 18. We're going to be picking up today in verse 28 and continuing into the first little bit of chapter 19. Uh, as we reach the end of the gospel, we're turning to the story of Jesus's crucifixion. And today, we're going to be looking at his trial before Pilate. As you're turning there, and as we read through this section, and really through this whole sermon, I have something I want you to keep in mind. Appearances can be deceiving. Mysterious, right? Appearances can be deceiving. Now, we know this in a lot of areas of life. There are times where our impressions of people turn out to be very wrong in the end after we get to know them a little better. There are times when we can walk into a situation and immediately assume one thing is happening only to find out that we totally missed it and something else is happening. You could even think of some of the most famous stories where something ordinary turns out to be much more significant. When a wardrobe is an entry into another world or when a tiny gold ring is an immense power and a terrible evil, appearances can be deceiving. So with that in mind, let's turn and begin reading from God's Word. This is John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. And they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would be, not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out to him, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him shouting, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for our chance together together as your people. And we are thankful for your word to us. Father, as we study this passage this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This passage picks up immediately after what we talked about last week, Jesus' trial before the Jewish council of leaders, the Sanhedrin, in the first half of chapter 18. And now Jesus is led before the Roman governor. Certainly the Jews could have uh, had a mob and lynched Jesus or, or thrown rocks, stoned him to death, but they didn't want that. They wanted an official condemnation and execution. And the Romans were the only one who could do this. And so they pulled Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And he is the authority and the power of the Roman Empire represented to the Jewish people. Now, there are a lot of people who are kind of in charge of Jerusalem, but there's no one more in charge than Pilate. Pilate is the emperor's representative here, and it's his job to keep this place in line. So Pilate interviews Jesus, and, and he declares him not guilty. There's not really any clear charges against him. There's not really any clear idea of what he's done uh, it's pretty clear to him they just want this person killed. And so um, he makes several attempts to, fr- to free Jesus, but the crowd wants blood. And they push him and they push him until he bows to the pressure and he condemns Jesus to crucifixion. And to any observer here, the Jewish authorities, and especially Pilate, the Roman governor, are standing in judgment over Jesus. Jesus is in the dock. He is on trial for his life, and he is losing this trial. He's beaten, he's chained, and his followers have fled. He looks helpless, and he is facing impossible opposition that ultimately he fails against. But appearances can be deceiving. All of them there who look so powerful, who look like they have this situation under control, who look like they have all the might and authority behind them, they are actually standing before the real king. And their uh, actions towards him, their attitude towards him, is going to determine their final destiny. This is actually completely flipped. And the man on trial is the one who they will all stand before in judgment. This passage is all about a contrast between two kinds of king or ruler two kinds of kingdom, 
and two different, uh, two different kingdom citizens. Which citizen are you going to be, of the one kingdom or the other? During his trial, in contrast to Pilate and to Rome, Jesus acts as the true king of the true kingdom. And he opens a way for us to become citizens of this true kingdom. So this is what we're going to look at today. In this trial, we're going to look at these three areas. Jesus as the true king, Jesus ruling over the true kingdom, and the way to become a citizen of this true kingdom. Let's begin with Jesus as the true king. When Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus, he opens with this question, So, I hear you're the king of the Jews. The Jewish leaders had brought this charge against him, probably because it was the thing they could say in their mind that would most make Rome angry. If there's something that Rome did not like, it was people who were rising up to overthrow the Roman authority. And this is even what the, the Jewish people were hoping for. They were hoping the Messiah would be a warrior king who would fight against the Romans and free his people. But... Jesus is not a would-be political leader. He's not out there raising militias or stirring up discontent. That's not what he's doing. And his answer shows that pretty clearly. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's the true king. And unlike earthly would-be kings, uh, he's going to act much differently. All of the Gospels stress this hidden identity that Jesus had, that he did not look what he appeared to be. And even in the Gospel of John, we see so many indications of who Jesus really is. He is the all-powerful Word who was with God and was God from the beginning. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He appeared as an ordinary and unremarkable person, as any other person might. And so the world did not know him. Even his own did not know him, did not recognize him. This is the beautiful mystery of the incarnation, of eternal God becoming a man. And it explains to us how the author of life here could be standing on trial to be executed as a criminal. In complete contrast, completely different from this hidden true king, we have Pilate. And we actually know a ton about Pilate. Pilate came from a rural province, pretty small area, and his ticket out of there was to join the Roman military. He was, he was an army guy. He, he went out and became a commander and then eventually got to Rome, got to the capital. He married the right people. He married someone who was related to the emperor, and he got into politics, right? It's a pretty natural story. He's done well for himself. He's appointed the emperor's ruler over Palestine, the area that was Jerusalem and, and, and where we think of Israel today. And he represented all of the strength and the power and the greatness of Rome. He has the undisputed power of that time to execute criminals, to enforce justice. He has an army at his command. He can pass edicts and crush uprisings. He lives in the imperial palace in Jerusalem in fine clothes with the best food. And he sits on a literal throne, a place of judgment, to speak authoritatively to all who are there. And so in many ways, he's the imperfect embodiment of our world's idea of power and success of a king. And standing before him that day, Jesus looked nothing like a king, nothing like a ruler. He had been up all night. He was exhausted. He was bound. There was no army. There weren't even 12 disciples who would come and stand there with him while he was on trial. No one to support him. They dressed him in mock robes. They, they smashed a crown of thorns on his head, humiliated him. They flogged him, and it was brutal. That ripped apart. He was, he was bleeding and bloody as he stands here. 
During these interviews with Pilate, Jesus would have been a horror to look at. Much of Jesus' true identity only becomes clear when we see the whole gospel, when we see all of these clues of who he is, all this revelation. But even here, at his lowest, on trial for his life, we can see that Jesus, not Pilate, is the true king. There's three ways we see this. First, there's authority. A king should have authority. As a governor, Pilate commanded all of the soldiers in Palestine, and he ruled over all of the residents. The Jewish leaders, even the like, nominal Jewish king, Herod, he reported to Pilate. He's there to judge crimes, uh, and he has almost total authority in this situation. And so when Pilate questioned Jesus' refusal to defend himself, he asked, don't you know I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? you I'm not the one you can be silent in front of. I'm the man you have to talk to. I have the power here. But his authority is limited, and it's derived, which means it only comes from another. Pilate only had authority as long as he remained in the good graces of the emperor, of his superiors, as long as he pleased the empire and kept the peace, which was tenuous in that time. If he failed to keep things under control in Jerusalem, he would get the axe quick, and he wasn't getting moved over to another department or something like that. This would be bad news for Pilate. And even more than just Pilate, all human authority comes from another. A king is only a king as much as he has people around him to tell everyone that he's in charge, as much as he has enforcers and soldiers and servants there, as much as he has impressive uh, array and and clothing and, and the stuff there to show that he's an important person. All authority comes from another. And on a theological side, Jesus tells him, something even even more true, that there is no authority in the world except that it is given and allowed by God. Pilate would have no authority over him if it had not been given to him by God, is what Jesus tells him, which is a really bold thing to say when you're standing there bleeding and on trial to say, hey, you wouldn't have anything if God hadn't given to you, but it's true. Jesus stood before Pilate, not because Pilate wished it, but because Jesus wished it, because God wished it. Jesus' authority is very different. It is unlimited, and it's underived. It comes from himself. He has authority from himself. God, the Father, has bestowed it on him. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything. He taught with authority. He showed authority over nature when he, when he calmed the sea, when he multiplied the, the loaves and the fish. He showed authority over the spiritual realm when he cast out demons And if he had wished to, he could have called down a host of angels to to come and rescue him. He had the army. He just didn't call on it. Jesus chose to remain and to go to the cross. Jesus submitted his authority to the plan of God. He laid down his own life. No one, and especially not Pilate or all of Rome, took his life from him. Jesus has the real authority here. Second thing a king should have is power or, or control Kings should be able to do what they want to do. They have the muscle to to pass their own laws, to enforce the rule. Um, They can do what they want to do. And it looks like Pilate should be in control here. But over and over again, Pilate does not get what he wants. Pilate is never in control of this situation, even though nominally he's the guy in charge. He's trying to release Jesus. He's trying to make this crowd calm down. He's trying to protect who he probably really believes is an innocent man, and he achieves none of those things. 
He offers a substitute for Barabbas. They don't want that. They demand Jesus. He tries to placate the crowd by whipping Jesus, by humiliating him, saying, look, isn't this good enough? They don't want it. They want a crucifixion. Everything he does fails until he bends over to the will of the mob and says, here you go. Now wash my hands of this. Crucify him. He's pushed and manipulated into doing what he believes to be wrong. Pilate is never in control. But Jesus never loses control. He's mostly silent here. We don't see a person who's begging for their life. We don't see a person who's pleading their own innocence as they see the trial turn against them. He's silent. And when he answers, it's to remove misconceptions about who he is for Pilate. It's for our sake and for his. It's not for Jesus' sake. It almost feels like Pilate is the one being interrogated and not Jesus. As the trial goes on, it's not Jesus who's becoming more and more panicked. It's Pilate. Jesus is in control. He went to the cross because it was the perfect plan of God, made before the foundations of the world. Jesus goes to the cross to seek and to save the lost, to die on behalf of sinners like you and me. And Jesus was even in control of the time he went. It notes here that when this was the day of the Passover and that he went at the sixth hour. That's the hour when the Passover lamb is offered. Jesus was in control of even the minutes and the hours of this trial. He is the king who uses his perfect power and authority to save others and not himself. He has authority, he has power, and he has glory. The moment of the cross becomes Jesus' enthronement. It is the way to glory. Pilate's glory looks like the best of the would-be kings of this world. They're impressive because of their, their clothing, because of their wealth, because of their title. Their many servants, their entourage, their employees and soldiers. But Jesus' glory is real and unfading. When all of the clothes and riches and possessions and yes-men have gone away, Jesus Christ remains elevated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The one who came low will be raised high, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king, with a glory undiminishing. When John wrote this gospel, Pilate was already gone. He'd fallen out of control. He'd been removed. He'd been axed. And the Roman Empire had come and, and leveled the city. His glory was extinguished, but King Jesus remains on the throne forever. He has the authority. He has the power. He has the glory. Jesus here is the true king. Second thing we see is that Jesus rules the true kingdom. Jesus rules the true kingdom. Jesus is very different from earthly kings, and so it's natural that he would rule a different kind of kingdom. When we're talking about kingdom here, we're talking about the area and the people who are under the king's authority and his protection. And Jesus speaks specifically about his kingdom in verses 36 and 38 when, when uh, Pilate is, is interrogating him. Pilate probably notices, he's a pretty sharp guy, that if Jesus wanted to be a king and rule a kingdom, he doesn't seem to be doing a very good job at it. He's collected a group of fishermen, of women, and one tax collector uh, who have all run away. They don't own any property. 
They hadn't collected any weapons, and they have no political influence. All of the higher-ups, all of the, the people to know, the people who are moving and shaking, they are all trying to murder him. This has not gone well. This is nothing like what Pilate would have thought as a kingdom of Rome, the greatest of all kingdoms, the empire that dominated the world, a marvel of efficiency and power. They had conquered a larger area than anyone had ever seen, and they ruled it efficiently. They built roads. They built aqueducts and and huge marvels of architecture. They had one of the most organized armies that created a peace that the world had never known before, and they had a vicious sense of justice that they weren't shy about using. If you stepped out of line, they came and they took you out quickly. Rome used their power to put down the weaker and elevate themselves up, and they did a really good job at it. Jesus seems to be nowhere close to being able to put up a fight against Rome. And Jesus tells Pilate that he's right. That's not what I'm doing. The Roman army doesn't need to worry about me and my guys. His kingdom, he says, is not of this world. Otherwise, yeah, there would be soldiers fighting for him, keeping him from being turned over, preventing his arrest. But his kingdom is not of this world. What does he mean? He means that its source, its origin, and its character is different from every other kingdom. It's not from this place. Jesus' kingdom comes from somewhere else. Its character is totally different. Jesus rules over a different kind of kingdom, the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. There are two things we see that the kingdom of God is founded on. The first is truth. When Jesus speaks of his kingdom, he speaks about his purpose coming into the world. Not to draw a boundary, not to raise an army, but to proclaim the truth. The kingdom of God is a kingdom founded on truth. What do we mean by this? First, and most fundamentally, truth means that something matches with reality. It is absolutely real. The things uh, can either match to the truth or they can contradict it, right? There is a truth. There is an absolute sense, and we either get in line with it or we oppose it. We either tell the truth or we tell a lie about reality, the way the world is. We can live in harmony and conform to the reality that God has created, or we can fight against it and cling to our own lies and our own self-deception. Jesus' kingdom is truth. It is reality. And even though we can't see it, the the amazing thing is Jesus' kingdom is more real than any kingdom we can ever see. It's more real than Rome. It's more lasting. It's more real than any nation or power that's come since or will ever come again. Jesus' kingdom is truth. The second way that it is true is is because of this proclamation, this message, this true word that Jesus came to proclaim. Jesus says, this is the purpose I came for, to proclaim the truth. He's talking about the gospel. And this is more than just a good message, although it is a very good message. More than that, he is showing us who he is. Jesus says earlier in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. When Jesus proclaims truth, he is proclaiming himself. Come to me. I am the truth. I am what is real. I am truth itself. Salvation comes from him. And through him, he leads us to God the Father. The kingdom of God is truth, and those who belong to it have embraced the truth. They have embraced what is real. They have left behind the lies, the darkness, the unreality. They believe in Jesus, the truth himself. He says that those of the truth are those who realize there is a spiritual kingdom and who seek it first, Matthew six thirty three says. Jesus is calling a materialistic world to seek first the kingdom of God. 
This is the kingdom. And what can Pilate reply to this kingdom? He says, what is truth? I don't think his question is genuine. I don't think he's genuinely asking for Jesus to explain here. See, Pilate believes Jesus is innocent. He knows this guy hasn't committed a crime. But more than anything, Pilate is troubled by Jesus because Jesus interferes with his plans. This trial is disrupting his career. It's disrupting the peace. And maybe it even bothers his conscience a little bit that he's going to have to send a condemned man to the cross. The truth, if he believes in it, is an inconvenience to what he wants. And so instead of listening to hear what the truth is, he doesn't have time for it. The truth is getting in the way of what he wants to do. If he believes in the truth at all, he is not interested in knowing what it is. This is the spirit of our age, isn't it? Truth is whatever I need it to be to get to where I want to go. And if that gets in the way, so be it. That is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is a way of truth. The kingdom is also brought about through suffering and death. It's going to come through the sacrificial death of Jesus. This is why Jesus, with all the authority and all the power, goes to the cross. He must go to the cross in order to bring about the kingdom, to open it to, to anyone who would believe the truth. In his death, Jesus bears our sins. He carries our infirmities, our sorrow, our weakness. He takes the lashes, the nails, and the scars that we deserved for rebelling against God, for rebelling against the very reality and truth that he created. We often call the kingdom the upside-down kingdom because the way to exaltation is through humility. The way to gain your life is to lose it. And we follow this same way, the way of Jesus, to enter into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not an empire like Rome, where the strong conquer the weak. There is no one stronger than God. Here, self-exaltation is not the path to achievement. The kingdoms of the world create only wreckage and collapse. They're built on selfishness and a desire for power. The kingdom of God is something totally different. Earthly kingdoms bring slavery. They're built on indulgence and luxury. They're temporary. They seek praise and affirmation from the world. They're built on uncertainty, on shifting sands, here one day and gone the next, and ultimately they are chaos, tossed to and fro by the waves, as the Bible puts it. The heavenly kingdom brings freedom. It is about humility through suffering. It is an eternal kingdom built on an unshakable foundation. It seeks the praise and affirmation of God. It speaks the truth, and it is under the control and the protection of the Almighty One. The kingdom of God is secure. It is a kingdom of truth. It is a kingdom that comes through the suffering of Jesus. So if Jesus is the true king, and he rules over the true kingdom, lastly, we see that Jesus saves us to become true kingdom citizens. Jesus opens the way for us to be true kingdom citizens. There are two kinds of people in this world. You've heard that a lot of times, right? Well, there are. The Bible tells us. There's two kinds of kings. There's two kinds of kingdoms. And so there's two kinds of citizens. Citizens of Christ's kingdom or citizens of the kingdoms of the world. Whatever one might happen to be here at the moment. And our citizenship is determined entirely by our relationship to the king. 
In this account that we read in John 18 and 19, we see a couple different reactions that they have to Jesus. We see the mob, the, the Jewish leaders, and they are determined to see him executed, to see him humiliated in the worst way possible. They demand, crucify him, crucify him. And there's probably no stronger reaction, no stronger rejection of Christ than that. They chant, we have no king but Caesar. And this is a pretty astonishing thing for Jewish people to chant. As Jewish people who have the Old Testament revelation for them, they know that God is their king, not Caesar. And they are willing to chant, we have no king but Caesar, if it gets them what they want right now. They will only follow the empires and the rulers of the world because they have rejected the true king. However, I think a far more common reaction to Jesus is the one we see in Pilate. It's a disinterested rejection. Pilate has his own stuff going on, and he doesn't really have time for all this. He is not interested in this Jewish religious controversy. He is interested only in keeping the status quo as calm and ordinary as possible. He wants everyone to calm down and go home and stop bothering him. He has a career to think about, the complexities of governing and keeping his superiors happy. For him, Jesus is an inconvenience, a distraction. And so he's so caught up in himself that he does not care to know or understand the truth. But appearances can be deceiving. Pilate wasn't examining a common criminal, and the crowd didn't chant for the execution of just some random Jewish teacher. Both the, the crowd and the governor are standing before the king, the one who God has given full authority to judge, the one before whom everyone will give an account of their actions and their words. To reject Jesus, whether it be in anger and hatred or whether it be in disinterest, brings alienation. They lose out on the kingdom. Those who believe in and follow Jesus are saved into the true kingdom, and they are made to be full citizens. And those who reject Jesus remain in the world. They remain in the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, describes this. It says of Jesus, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We move from darkness into light. Those who reject him, either strongly or softly, align themselves with the side that opposes God, against, with the worldly kingdoms. Our citizenship, our belonging, and our eternal destiny is determined by our relationship to the crucified king. That's the only thing. How do you relate to Jesus? How do you know Jesus? It's the only question that matters. So here we have the true king, the true kingdom, and the way to enter as true citizens of that heavenly kingdom. So I want to close our time today by asking, what would God have us do with these two kingdoms, these two kings, these two kinds of kings? And we'll say three things briefly. First, God is calling us to believe in the true king and kingdom. To believe in the true king and kingdom. Remember, Appearances can be deceiving. 
We see numerous examples of worldly kings, of worldly kingdoms, of, of strength and values that are all around us in the world. We have a thousand examples of Pilate's and Rome's to look at. And those things become very normal to us. But we don't see the true king with our eyes. We don't see the kingdom with our, with our feet and our hands and our senses. We can't get a passport and get on a plane and fly to the kingdom of God. And so it's very easy to maybe know and understand Jesus is king and has a kingdom, but not see it every day, to not really bring it into our heart, to not let it shape who we are and what we do day in and day out. We see and we become accustomed to the world around us, and we forget the reality of what we belong to as people of Jesus. This knowledge is, can't just be in our minds. It has to go into our heart. It has to shape who we are and what we do. It has to change us. To believe in the true king and the true kingdom means to build your life on it, to give your full weight to it. Not one foot, not one toe, not one day of the week, your full weight, everything you have belongs to the king and to the kingdom. Then we become the living pictures of the kingdom, the first little glimpses of what one day will be sight. When the world sees the church living as citizens of God's true kingdom, worshiping the true king, they see a tiny little picture of what will one day be everywhere. God's kingdom, Jesus close to us, ruling and reigning with evil and darkness gone forever. Remind yourselves daily of these truths, church. Pray each day. We believe. Help our unbelief. We have to believe in the kingdom. Secondly, God is calling us to desire the true kingdom. To desire the true kingdom. Entering this kingdom of God means adopting the characteristics of the kingdom. We live by the values of the kingdom. We must be people of the truth. People who enter glory through suffering. Our desires, what we love, must also change. See, by ourselves, we actually love, we desire the world around us. We desire the kingdoms of this earth. We want the power of the world around us. We want the affirmation of the world around us. We want the status of the world around us. This is in our nature. In our, on our own, we desire sin. We come to love it. John tells us we have loved the darkness We've come to love our own lies and to believe them. Pilate does this. He ignores the truth because he does not desire the truth. He wants the darkness. King Jesus must change our minds, but he must also reform our loves. He must change our desires for the heavenly kingdom to see the beauty of the cross and what Jesus has won for us. We can treat Jesus like Pilate did, as a hindrance to what we really want to do. We can have our own plans, our own desires, our own values. If Jesus can help me get what I want, then great. But if Jesus is calling me to step away from those things, I don't know. I don't know if I want that. Then he's an inconvenience, a distraction from my stuff. This is a quiet rejection. And so we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus keeping me from the lifestyle I want to live? Is Jesus keeping me from the desire that I want to indulge in? Is Jesus keeping me from the decisions and dreams that I want to realize? 
If that's how we feel, then we have not yet seen Jesus as king. And we have not yet seen the kingdom as a reality, as a beauty that God has prepared for us. Isaiah 33, 17 speaks of seeing and desiring God's kingdom. Not just knowing it's what we should do, but it's what we really want. He says, your eyes will behold the king in, its, in his beauty, and they will see a land that stretches afar. Isaiah is speaking of severing, seeing and savoring, two different words, the promised king, of enjoying the freedom and the flourishing of the kingdom. When we come to follow Jesus as king, we find his gentle embrace, not a heavy burden. We find that Jesus hasn't taken anything good from us, but has given us all good things. And then we will see Jesus not as a hindrance, or as an inconvenience, or as a burden, but as the good king in his glory and beauty and the freedom that it brings. We must pray each day that God would change our loves, that we would love God's kingdom, that we would love God's word, that we would love Jesus above anything else that we can gain. In the Psalms, it says that if we love God with all of our heart, then he will give us the desires of our heart. Why? Because our desire will be for him, not for anything else. Our desire will be just for Jesus, and he will give himself fully to us. We desire the true kingdom. And lastly, it's calling us to enter, as, as enter the kingdom as citizens. Jesus saves broken people, and he makes us into kingdom citizens. If you have not followed Jesus, if you have not entered into the kingdom, you can do so. Jesus has opened the doors wide to any who would come and ask forgiveness, to anyone who would come and ask for life, to anyone who would say, Jesus, save me. King Jesus remained in that trial. He took those whips, he endured that mockery, and he went to the cross to extend full citizenship to all who would come. Go to Jesus, he will welcome you. Enter the kingdom. And so church, appearances can be deceiving, remember. No matter what we face, no matter what we see every day, which earthly kingdoms rise and fall, Jesus, the crucified one, is king. Believe in the true king and enter the true kingdom. Let's pray together, church. Father, we, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for what you did on our behalf. Father, we read this story of your trial and of your execution, and we don't even really see the brutality and, and the suffering that you went through. And we can't imagine the suffering of bringing all of our sin and all of our wickedness onto yourself for our sake. Father, I pray that this truth, this good news, this, this beautiful reality that you have fought and won for us would change who we are, Lord. I pray that we would believe in you, in Jesus, the true King, and we would give you everything we have. Father, I pray that you would change our desires, that we would love you and love your way, love your word. 
And Father, I pray that you would make us as individuals and as a church into a shining example, a light in the darkness of the coming kingdom. Father, you know each of us and where we are. You know what we are facing today and tomorrow and the next day. Father, I pray you would meet us there. I pray you would give us the strength to follow you. I pray you would give us the clarity to see truly, to see reality, to be people of the truth in our workplaces, in our families, in our homes. Father, make us into followers of Jesus that show your goodness, that show your beauty to the world around us. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.